0: Uh, Mark Gaskarowski is a professor of political science at Tulane and today he is going to talk to us about the antecedents and the course of the Iranian uh, Revolution. (coughs) Uh, This has a direct British connection because it was following the British lead in 1953 that the CIA overthrew the Iranian government. Uh, the consequences of this, and the connection between the uh, revolution of 1978-79, is an open question. Uh, but you can see from the uh, quotation in the announcement that some people at the time believed that it was very direct. Homini, lift his beard, and you will see "Made in England." Uh, now, this is a uh, a, a comment that indirectly indicates uh, a (coughs) phenomenon. Albert Harani in Oxford, the famous historian of the Arabs, uh, once said that for conspiracy theories, Iranians win the prize, that there is nothing like it. And I remarked at the time that that sounds to me something like a national stereotype. And he said, yes, perhaps, but it's true. (laughs) Uh, So perhaps you can also uh, address yourself to uh, conspiracy theories in the course of the,
1: anyway. I will. Mark? Well, thank you, Roger, and uh, thanks for inviting me here. As I've told a few people, this is my second time at University of Texas. Roger and Jim Bill uh, very graciously invited me here 30-something years ago to a a wonderful conference they had in 1985. And uh, it's nice to be back here. So thanks to Roger, and thanks to the British Studies Program for inviting me. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about the origins of the revolution. What I'm going to talk about here is Uh, Basically, U.S. policy, mostly things CIA was doing, but U.S. policy toward Iran in the 10-month period after the revolution culminated. So this is the period from February 1979 when the Shah fled and a new uh, provisional government was established under Mehdi Bazargan, who I'll mention him a few times today. Uh, So I'm going to cover from February 1979 until the US embassy was taken in early November 1979, beginning the uh, infamous US embassy hostage crisis. So this was a a key time period. The new regime that resulted from the revolution was beginning to establish itself. And the US was trying to uh, create some kind of a a new relationship with Iran. Uh, after uh, the previous period of 25 years or so from the 1953 coup that Roger mentioned, in which the U.S. was very much the, the sort of hegemonic power in Iran. So the, uh, the title that I gave Roger for this class uh, begins with the expression, after empire. So this was an after empire period, after the U.S. had had this hegemonic relationship with Iran, The revolution ended that, and so now the U.S. was in a position of trying to establish some kind of different relationship. Uh, There have been a lot of after-empire periods. As Roger mentioned, the British had one in 1953. They had been thrown out by Prime Minister Mossadegh, the British Embassy closed. Then after the 1953 coup, they were allowed to come back into Iran and uh, reopen their embassy in December. 1953, with a very different posture toward Iran, a much more conciliatory, uh, constructive posture. And of course, many other hegemonic powers out there, Britain and many other places, the French and Algeria and so many other places, the Soviets, uh, also have had these after empire uh, experiences. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about all of those. And I'm not going to say very much about Britain in 1953. Um, Mainly, what I'm going to talk about is uh, what were you know, some key things that the United States was doing in its policy toward Iran in this time period of February through November 1979. Uh, and in doing so, I'm going to be summarizing two articles that I've published about this in Middle East Journal and Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, which, if you want to see them, and they're, they're really good reads, I would say, uh,
0: <laughs>
1: you can easily find my website. Well, if you can spell my name, you can find my website at Tulane and, and download them from there. And uh, I sent copies to Roger as well. Um, so, so let me first begin by just kind of sketching the background a little bit of this period of February through November 1979. Uh, The US had become sort of the hegemonic power, the dominant power, the great power exercising influence in Iran in 1953 when the CIA carried out a coup there that overthrew a popular sort of secular nationalist government Um, and created a very different era, an era that was a lot more repressive and in which Iran became sort of a battleship on the picket line around the Sino-Soviet periphery. Uh, Iran was a key uh, player in the U.S. strategy of containment toward the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. Uh, and uh, Iran you know was very very useful to the United States in this capacity uh, after 53 through the 60s and into the 70s until the Iranian Revolution occurred. So the US had been the hegemonic power before the revolution much as Britain had been the hegemonic power in Iran prior to 1953. Um, During this time of US hegemony in Iran all kinds of wild sort of conspiracy theory scenarios uh, emerged uh, among Iranians. They increasingly, during this 25 years, came to see the U.S. as what they still call today the great Satan. And partly for good reason. I mean, this was very much blown out of proportion and exaggerated by Iranians. But the U.S. Uh, had done in the 1953 coup and continued to do things that were pretty harmful to Iran during this period, especially in propping up the regime of the Shah, who was not a hugely brutal dictator, but he was a dictator nonetheless. And uh, a lot of Iranians pretty rightly uh, blamed the United States for propping him up so that by The time of the Iranian Revolution in 1978, 1979, there was a great deal of anti-Americanism in in Iran. And then during the course of the revolution, this was greatly magnified. And the revolution was almost as much about anti-Americanism as it was about creating an Islamic regime. And of course, Iran remains very anti-American today, 40 years later. Um, so the, this 25-year or so period of American hegemony was a period in which there was you know, growing antipathy by Iranians toward the United States. Uh, and then it all came crashing down with the Iranian Revolution in 78-79. And then in mid-February 1979, suddenly the United States was faced with a very different situation, a situation where uh, we had little capability to do anything in Iran, where our clients and puppets had either fled into exile or were, you know, uh, cowering somewhere underground inside Iran, uh, and where Iran's leaders were ranged from pretty damn anti-American to extremely anti-American. So it was a very different situation that the U.S. faced in this 10-month period. Um, the U.S. had basically three main goals during this period. I'm not going to dwell on this, but let me just quickly go through it. First of all, the U.S. wanted to keep Iran as you know, the battleship in this picket, picket line around the Sino-Soviet periphery. They knew that Iran was no longer going to be, you know, working closely with the U.S. on anything. But they certainly wanted to maintain Iran's territorial (laughs) integrity, which there were a lot of challenges to during this period. And they did not want any further instability. They wanted Iran to be stable, Uh, and to maintain its integrity so that you know the Soviet Union couldn't somehow start expanding in the southwesterly direction toward the Persian Gulf Um, and so again the US very much wanted to maintain Iran's territorial integrity and political stability many Iranians thought it was quite the opposite many Iranians thought the United States was fomenting the political instability and was trying to break up Iran in this period, it was quite the opposite. Secondly, the US was trying to resolve many outstanding disputes between the US and Iran that existed. There were huge numbers of arms sales contracts that had not been fulfilled, uh, billions and billions of dollars. There were many other kinds of commercial uh, deals that were sort of languishing, uh, unfulfilled. Another very important issue, which I'll briefly come back to a little bit later on, uh, the US had established very important listening posts in northeastern Iran that were uh, situated to monitor the Soviet missile testing sites in what I think is now Kazakhstan, um, up in Central Asia. And there are not too many places that you can you know, m- monitor uh, radio traffic and stuff like that. Uh, the U.S. had been doing that. The CIA had been doing that in Iran since the late 1950s. Uh, those listening posts were shut down soon after the revolution. The U.S. was hoping that they could be reestablished. And the U.S., as I'll talk later on, was even trying to get the Iranians to agree, and you know, the U.S. would share intelligence. This was especially important. This was an era of first the SALT I and at this time the SALT II agreement. Uh, these listening posts were vital for monitoring those arms control agreements. And the US very much wanted to try to reestablish them. Thirdly, the US, of course, wanted to encourage moderates. There were plenty of radicals in Iran at this time of all different kinds. Uh, but there were also moderates. You know, The revolution had been carried out by a coalition of you know, very diverse forces in Iran. The moderates populated the provisional government prime minister, foreign minister, other key positions like that. And so the US wanted to help them out and you know try to strengthen and solidify them although of course without appearing overtly to do so because you know any hint of US intervention in uh, Iranian domestic politics, you know, would have made the radicals just see red at this time. So, you know, these were the things the U.S. was trying to achieve. U.S. officials fully understood, you know, that their time of hegemony in Iran had come to an end. Uh, They understood that the Iranians were very furious at the United States for various things the U.S. had done. Uh, The U.S. was trying to make something of the new situation, an after empire situation. Uh, What Britain faced in 1953 (coughs) was, of course, in many ways quite different. You know, the leadership in Iran, after the 1953 coup, uh, was quite open to the British. And it wasn't particularly hard for the British to work out an arrangement whereby they would reopen their embassy. And they also, like the Americans were in 79, pursued a constructive, conciliatory posture. And the British managed to come out pretty well after 1953 in the after-empire situation. Of course, that didn't happen with the United States in 1979. Just the whole thing blew up. And today, 40 years later, we're still having severe tension with Iran. So that's kind of general background. Let me just say a few things about uh, what the CIA was doing in Iran at this time, because most of what I'm going to talk about today is stuff the CIA was doing. Um, You know, for one thing, since the U.S. did not want to foment instability in Iran, and the U.S. certainly did not want to be found out to be plotting with any Iranian factions. Uh, The U.S. very strongly forbade the CIA from carrying out any kind of covert political operations in Iran. That was just not something that Washington was going to tolerate, and I'm going to come back to that more. However, this was a situation that desperately, desperately needed intelligence. You know, the, the, the Iranian revolution, this was a totally new phenomenon. There had not been an Islamic revolution. There had not been an Islamic republic created, anything of that sort. This was entirely, you know, a new game. U.S. desperately needed intelligence to figure out what was going in Iran so, you know, U.S. policy could be guided appropriately. And of course, that's for the CIA to do, especially so while washington did not want cia to be doing covert operations covert political operations it certainly wanted cia to gather intelligence and cia did as you'll see Uh, you'll be amazed at some of the things i'm going to say about that Uh, so cia was in iran it had a small presence it had most of the time four cia officers undercover in the u.s embassy in this period from february Uh, through uh, early November of 1979, what they were doing was gathering intelligence, not carrying out covert political activities. There were two main problems that the CIA station in Iran labored under in this time period, as you can imagine. First of all, intense anti-Americanism. This is a very dangerous time for any American to be in Iran let alone a CIA officer. It was an extremely dangerous situation. It it may well be that there's never been a place where the CIA has had a, a station that has been more difficult to operate. Even the Soviet Union, I mean, if you get picked up by the KGB and you're a CIA guy, well, they'll just deport you. In Iran, when CIA people got captured, they weren't deported. They were kept as hostages and tortured. Um, So it was an extremely tense situation for Americans in general, and especially for the CIA in Iran. Uh, And indeed, when the U.S. Embassy was taken and 53 Americans were taken hostage, three of them were CIA officers, and they were treated pretty badly, tortured, kept in solitary confinement, subject to mock executions, and things of that sort. So that's just an illustration of, you know, the difficulties that CIA faced. These difficulties uh, made it necessary to have some uh, pretty strict restrictions on what CIA was doing. They had to do just intense security precautions, like, for example, making sure they weren't being monitored, staying away from any contacts, things of that sort. Uh, So very, very strict security precautions. For most of this time period, CIA officers were rotated in and out of Iran on very brief assignments, typically three months. As far as I know, only one CIA officer stayed longer than three months in this period. He stayed for four months and then was taken hostage. Um, No CIA officers with prior experience in Iran could be deployed there, because of course they would be known which meant no one with any expertise on Iran, no one with Persian language capabilities or anything like that. So CIA was laboring under very, very severe restrictions in Iran in this 10-month period. Furthermore, as you can imagine, uh, with the intense anti-Americanism that existed, uh, the many, many contacts that the CIA had previously had in Iran, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of people, uh, were, many of them left Iran. Some of them were thrown in prison and executed during this period. Uh, those others who survived stayed far, far away from their CIA contacts. And so almost all of the contacts the CIA had previously for intelligence gathering and things like that uh, had melted away in one way or another. And so the CIA people who were there were faced with having to develop you know, whole, whole new sets of uh, intelligence contacts inside Iran. So it was very, very difficult situation situation for CIA to operate. And in fact, it's amazing that that they did as much stuff as they did, which I'm going to explain in a minute, uh, given these uh, severe problems. So now, let me sketch out these two papers that cover uh, US policy toward Iran in this period. Um, I'm not going to go into all the juicy details, which there are a lot of in these papers. If you like spy stories, these are good reads, I would say. Um, So let me begin with uh, a paper that I published in Middle Eastern Studies in 2014. Um, This paper gives an overview of CIA activities in Iran and especially CIA contacts in Iran in this period, February through early November (coughs) 1979. It's based on an incredible resource that Iran people have but almost nobody uses, and that is. When the radical Islamist students seized the US embassy in November 1979, they seized a huge amount of US government documents, including CIA documents, that had not yet been destroyed. The embassy personnel destroyed some documents, but most of it they didn't because this happened so quickly. So the students who took the embassy had just mountains and mountains of of US government documents including what in the end were hundreds of pages of CIA cables, many of which had been shredded, but shredded in a way that they could be pieced back together. So the students who took the embassy, they basically got a bunch of Iranians with carpet weaving skills and taped together these shredded CIA documents, which you have to be very meticulous to do, uh... and there's this whole treasure trove of this kind of material this was uh... gradually published by the iranians in the course of the nineteen eighties they published about seventy three volumes of u.s. government documents and it's fascinating stuff um, it was pretty hard to get hold of for a long time uh... and it was illegal to have but now it's on the internet of course um, and so all of it's out there and it's been out there for you know easily accessible for about ten years And this material just provides incredible detail on especially CIA activities. I mean, anybody here ever seen the CIA cable? It's not something you come across every day, but there is just a wealth of this material for Iran in this time period. So it's mainly that that is the basis for uh, this first of the two papers I'm going to be talking about. I did, however, supplement it with uh, interviews with various people. I interviewed two of the three CIA guys who were taken hostage, uh, several other CIA people who were involved in this kind of stuff, and a bunch of the State Department people, and also actually several of the Iranians who were involved in taking the hostages, one of whom was a student of mine when I taught at Tehran University in the late 90s. Uh, so documents supplemented with interviews is my uh, source for this first paper and pretty much the second paper, too. So let me just quickly go through um, the main brunt of this paper, which is uh, I go through five categories of Iranians that the CIA was basically spying on, gathering intelligence on. Uh, in this time period of 1979, and I'll just sort of sketch out what they were trying to do and what they were not doing and then kind of summarize that very quickly. First category, Iranian government officials. Um, the US had a lot of contact with the Bazar government in this period, February through uh, November 1979. Most of the, all of this was carried out n- not by CIA officers, or most of this was not by CIA officers, but by the regular embassy diplomats. The ambassador, while they were still a US ambassador there, and then his replacement and others. Um, The main point of contact who soon emerged was a guy named Abbas Amir Entazam. He was deputy prime minister for most of this time period. But then in about uh, July or August, he was sent off to be uh, Iran's ambassador to five Scandinavian countries. Um, he was a key figure, not actually in what I'm talking about now, but but the second paper that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. So I'll come back to him. There was also a fair amount of contact with Prime Minister Ghan himself, also very much with uh, the foreign minister during most of this period. Uh, Ibrahim Yazdi, and uh, various other uh, officials. Um, CIA tried to recruit several key Iranians as intelligence sources in this period, not the ones I just mentioned. The most important person they tried to recruit was a guy named Abul Hassan Bani Saad, who in 1980 was elected Iran's first president. Uh, CIA tried very hard to recruit him as a paid agent in the course of 1979, and unsuccessfully. He, you know, he wouldn't really bite on their offers, although he actually also did not, you know, fully reject them. Uh, it's not even clear that he understood that this was the CIA. But they were trying to recruit him. Uh, the, the The problem is that uh, the documents on this were not destroyed when the embassy was taken, and so the hostage takers pretty quickly. F- found all this stuff and used it to discredit Saad, And they quickly published a volume of CIA reports on these efforts to recruit him. And it, it hurt him very much and undermined him. And eventually, he was forced to flee into exile. Uh, CIA also tried to recruit a couple of high-ranking military officers, one in Hong Kong, another in Italy. Uh, both of those also did not pan out. The one Iranian government official who they do seem to have recruited was an Iranian Christian woman named Victoria Vassari, who was in the Iranian foreign ministry. Uh, They recruited her, put her on the CIA payroll. Uh, She, in the end, didn't really provide much information, but unfortunately, the documents on this uh, were found by the Iranians who seized the embassy, and she was arrested and later executed for this. So you know, going on the CIA payroll is something you need to be careful about. And she's not the only one. I'll, I'll be talking about a few more. Um, so some efforts to recruit Iranian government officials, nothing really panned out there. Uh, second category of Iranians the CIA really tried to recruit were various moderate opposition activists inside Iran. In a few minutes I'll talk about people in exile outside of Iran. As you can imagine, all kinds of Iranians who were at all pro-American, you know, approached the U.S. Embassy in various ways at this time. Many of them had, you know, plots that, that they were undertaking most of which were just totally pie in the sky. You know, this was sometimes even things like a cab driver, you know, coming up to an American and saying, I can tell you how to overthrow the Khomeini regime. <laughs> um, so the US embassy was constantly being approached by these kinds of people. You know, most of them were not at all serious. Most of them, you know, the US was uh, very politely rejecting. But there were two important, very important Iranians that CIA did very extensively pursue in this period uh, in the realm of uh, moderate opposition figures inside Iran. Uh, the first was people surrounding Grand Ayatollah Shariat Madari. Uh Shariat Madari was pretty much the only other Iranian cleric of high rank and popularity to match Khomeini's. And Shariat Madari and Khomeini uh, were very, very different. Shariat Madari was a moderate, believed in separation between church and state, did not want an Islamic republic, all of which Khomeini wanted. So we can say that these were two major rivalries at the highest levels of the Shia clergy. Anyway, people around Shariat Madari began approaching the U.S. Embassy in various ways in this period, beginning in February 1979. And of course, the U.S. government was very interested in this. And so they had CIA pursue these various approaches. Um, and they met with various intermediaries, uh, one of whom was even Shariat Madhuri's son, uh, about this, to try to find out what Shariat Madari was up to, what did he want to do, what kind of capabilities did he have, and all these kinds of things. As these contacts progressed, uh, Shariat Madari's people began asking for U.S. support, you know, basically millions of dollars in support, even though Shariat Madari had an awful lot of money. Um, and so the CIA station you know, cabled this back to CIA headquarters, saying, look, you know, the Shariat Madari people are asking us for money and other kinds of assistance. Uh, we think that this would be a really good opportunity to engage in covert operations. CIA headquarters cabled back and said, no, don't do it. We are not doing covert operations in Iran. Just pursue these people for intelligence gathering purposes. And so in the end, nothing really came of this. Uh, but there is a huge uh, paper trail of this kind of stuff, which the captors of the embassy found and pieced together. Uh, this is more than one whole book worth of CIA documents on this. Um, so, you know, this was revealed in 1980 81, very much discredited Shariat Madari. He was uh, soon stripped of his clerical rank, which is roughly equivalent to stripping the Pope of his rank in the Catholic Church, uh, put under house arrest until he died in 1986. So a major CIA effort to collect intelligence on the Shariat Madari uh, network. Second one that was parallel to this uh, involved uh, a guy named Khosrow Gashgai. The Gashgai were, and still are today, Uh, a pretty important tribe located in south-central Iran, in the area around Shiraz. They're Turkic people. They speak a, a Turkic dialect. Um, The CIA had had extensive dealings with him back in the 40s and early 50s, which I've written another paper about. I won't even go into it now. Um, So he had been a very close contact for the U.S. government in the late 40s and early 50s. He was then driven into exile and spent 25 years or so living somewhere in the United States. He came back to Iran when the revolution culminated and pretty quickly made contact with the U.S. Embassy and began offering his services. Um, And he was very much a a secular nationalist, very appalled at the idea of an Islamic republic in Iran. So he basically began plotting uh, against the Islamic regime, working especially with another prominent Iranian, a guy named Ahmad Madani, who had been an admiral in the Iranian Navy, but then was fired for basically anti-Shah activity, uh, and was a pretty prominent secular nationalist in this era. So Ghashqai and Madani began plotting uh, and talking to the Americans. Uh, Gradually, they also began asking for assistance of various kinds. So again, the CIA station in Tehran cabled CIA headquarters and said, look, we think this could be a really good opportunity to do covert operations inside Iran. Again, CIA responded and said, we are not doing that. Uh, just maintain contact with these guys for intelligence-gathering purposes, see what they've got, but do not give them any kind of assistance. Um, So two major, major efforts the CIA turned (coughs) down to, uh, you know, deal with relatively powerful opposition factions at this time. Uh, Madani, Madani, well, Khasrugashgai was thrown in prison Uh, Once, after, uh, you know, the embassy was seized, once the students who took the embassy pieced together some of these CIA documents, they used those to incriminate him, and, you know, they are pretty incriminating, frankly, and he was eventually executed. Uh, Ahmad Madani, the Navy guy who was working with him, escaped you know, across the Turkish border into exile. Uh, the American, he quickly went to the American embassy in Ist- uh, or consulate in Istanbul. Uh, the U.S. started giving him millions of dollars in 1980, 1981. So he was really the first of the Iranian exile groups that the U.S. was supporting uh, after the embassy was seized. But eventually he was too independent, and they cut him off. And the Iranian government actually tried to poison him twice when he was in exile, but they never managed to kill him. He died a few years ago, you know, out in California. Uh, So, two major efforts by the CIA to gather intelligence, but not to carry out covert political operations through these two networks. I should just mention one other person in this category. There was uh, an Iranian Jewish guy named Simon Farzami, who uh, apparently had been a longstanding contact of the CIA. Um, There were some documents on him. These were also found by the hostage takers, and they arrested him and had him executed as well. Third category that it gets more and more interesting. Uh, there was the radical left. There were various different radical leftist factions who were sort of latecomers to the revolution. But by early 1979, they had seized a lot of weapons. They were rapidly recruiting on Iran's campuses. And during the course of 1979, they became powerful actors and real threats to the Islamic regime, so much so that in, in basically in 1981, they launched a counter-revolution against the Islamic regime that failed. So there was a, a rapidly emerging radical leftist opposition in 1979. Uh, now these people hated the United States, needless to say, and some of them had they had killed six Americans in the mid 1970s, uh, and the United States was totally against these kinds of people. Despite what Iranians charged, lots of Iranians believed that the U.S. was backing these kinds of people. Didn't make any sense at all, but you know these were the kinds of conspiracy theories that Iranians had at this time. Um, So the US, you know, was not remotely interested in helping these groups, and they probably wouldn't have taken help from the United States, at least not at this time anyway. But the US was very interested in gathering intelligence about them, because they were rapidly increasing, uh, increasingly important actors in Iran. And so uh, the embassy documents provide details on three sets, uh, three informants that managed to actually gather a lot of intelligence about uh, one of these radical leftist groups, the Fedayeen and One of them was a PLO guy who was on the CIA payroll. Uh, who the CIA had evidently recruited him in Lebanon sometime earlier than this. He then happened to be the head of a PLO team that was sent to Iran in 1979 to help train Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And so now he began reporting back to his CIA handlers from Iran about, you know, things that he saw in in this capacity of uh, heading a training mission to the Revolutionary Guards. So that was one source. Um, the other two were uh, two Iranians who the CIA managed to uh, persuade to go and gather intelligence and I'll talk more about them in a minute. so the u s had penetrations of the radical left in Iran in this period and actually gathered quite a bit of information about them. Fourth, and very much in parallel with the radical left, um, there were various ethnically-based guerrilla groups that were emerging in Iran in this period. Most importantly Kurds, which Iran has a lot of, uh, but also ethnic Arabs in southwestern Iran and Khuzestan. Uh, Turkomans in the northeast, Baluch in the southeast, uh, and later on, Gashkais and others. So there was rapidly growing ethnic unrest, ethnically-based guerrilla movements that were starting to clash with the Iranian security forces by April or so of 1979. So the U.S. wanted to gather intelligence on these groups. Um, and some of these groups, particularly the Kurds, were connected with the radical leftists. There's you know, long-standing connections there. Uh, so uh, the three people who the CIA had reporting on the radical left, the PLO guy and two others, also reported on the ethnic guerrillas of various sorts. The PLO guy reported information to the CIA on the Arab guerrillas who were beginning to emerge. Uh, and then the other two informants reported on uh, Kurds. One of them was even wounded in a clash between Kurds and the Revolutionary Guards. In addition to those three informants inside Iran, CIA had a lot of good connections in Europe uh, that reported mainly on the Kurds but a little bit on Arabs as well. Uh, there were several. Uh, connections that they had in Europe mostly in Germany with Iranian Kurds and they began to get evidence through these connections that Iraq was beginning to help Iranian Kurdish guerrillas against Iran. This was about mid-September 1979. And of course this was an extremely important issue and very explosive. And also the CIA saw this as, you know, valuable intelligence we can give to the Iranian government, tell them that the Iraqis are supporting these Kurdish guerrillas, that will further ingratiate us with the Iranian government. On the other hand, CIA also got intelligence, evidently from MI6, British Intelligence Service, Uh, that Iran was supporting Iraqi Kurds, so this was going both ways. Uh, Last set of Iranians that CIA was cultivating were various exile opposition groups. During the course of 1979, lots of uh, pro-monarchist or otherwise anti-Islamist Iranians uh, were escaping the country, mostly showing up in Europe. And a a lot of them, as soon as they did, approached the U.S. Embassy in country X or country Y saying that they had all kinds of connections back in Iran and they were ready to launch a coup or a guerrilla movement or something like that. So the U.S. was increasingly bombarded with requests from these Iranian exiles for support for these various opposition movements. Uh, There got to be so many that at a certain point the State Department sent a cable around to the major European embassies, basically telling them, don't deal with these Iranians. We're getting so many of these requests from these Iranian exiles, just show them the door. So there were a lot of approaches to the U.S., but the U.S. basically believed that none of these Iranian exile groups had any capability to overthrow the Islamic regime. This is a very clear-sighted analysis by the U.S., uh, and therefore we should not really have any dealings other than, you know, politely talking to them a little bit. We certainly should not support them. Of course, after the embassy was taken, the US did begin to support exile opposition groups. As I said, first Madani, they gave him several million dollars. Later on, various others. And through about 1996, the US was supporting exile groups. It never amounted to much of anything. But the US probably spent $20 million or so, but not during the period before the hostage crisis that I'm focusing on. So, anyway, you know, CIA was busy, as you can see. They were having dealings with all different kinds of people. This is dozens and dozens of contacts that I've just been sketching. all for the purpose of gathering intelligence, not supporting opposition to the Islamic regime. Many of these contacts were asking the U.S. for support. And in my going through the documents, I identified at least 16 occasions on which CIA or State Department officials refused or declined to give support to Iranian plotters. Uh, Some of these were more than once for the same guy. But there were at least 11 Iranian would-be plotters who were denied support by the United States on a total of at least 16 occasions, probably many more than those 16. So the US had plenty of opportunity in this period to foment trouble in Iran. But this was not what the United States wanted to do. And the US turned down lots of opportunities to do so. Anyway, that's the first paper. Second paper uh, I'll talk about more quickly, because I'm running out of time. The other really interesting thing that the United States was doing in this time period in Iran was gradually gearing up an intelligence sharing relationship with the Bazargan government. So uh, I published an article in the Middle East Journal in 2012 that details this, and so I'll sketch it out now. Um, In the early months after the revolution, the Bazargan government they were as desperate for information about what was going on as the US was or anybody else. I mean, this was really the fog of revolution. And you know, it was quite unclear what all was happening. And so uh, beginning basically in May 1979, Bazargan himself and other key top officials in the provisional government began asking US embassy officials for intelligence on certain threats to the new regime. Uh, Initially, they were asking for any intelligence the US had on these ethnic uprisings that were occurring, the Kurds, the Arabs, and others. Iranians didn't have much information on that. They, of course, assumed that the CIA knew everything and that CIA then would be able to give them some stuff. Um, And so they began asking for that. Uh, within a month or so they also began asking for intelligence from the US on Iraq's intentions toward Iran. By this time Saddam Hussein was in power in Iraq, he was intensely hostile toward Iran, he was very much fomenting unrest, especially among Kurds uh, and and among Iranian Arabs, and of course eventually he invaded Iran in September 1980. So the basra government began asking the US Embassy, and they were not in direct contact with CIA people. These were uh, State Department diplomats they were asking, for intelligence on the ethnic uh, uprisings and on Iraqi intelligence. So the US began to give them sort of small amounts of stuff, sort of small intelligence reports. But as these requests persisted, the uh, embassy contacted the State Department and said, look, we think this would be a good idea. We think we should really step up this intelligence provision stuff that we're doing now. Give the Iranians some really good stuff. They'll really appreciate it. It will help us you know, improve our relations with them. And so the State Department ing- agreed. So in July 1979, the number two person in the State Department, David Newsom, uh, approved this. And began working with the CIA to set up a series of intelligence briefings by CIA personnel in Tehran uh, to top members of the Bazargan government. Uh, so this was mostly to, this was to be done by CIA officers, and the intelligence was intelligence that the CIA acquired, but the State Department was overseeing these briefings. So two briefings occurred. The first was in late August, uh, when uh, the guy who was at this time the national intelligence officer for the Middle East, his name was Robert Ames. He was later killed in one of the terrorist bombings in Beirut. Uh, He went to Tehran and delivered uh, sort of a broad overview to the Bazargan people. Um, This was mainly meant to be sort of a meet and greet uh... initiation of what would be a long-term uh, series of briefings so the first briefing was in august didn't really amount to very much after this briefing the u.s. began providing additional written reports to the embassy that were passed on to the government particularly about soviet activity in afghanistan which was beginning to ramp up in summer and fall of nineteen seventy nine the second briefing and the last briefing is the important one this occurred in October, on October 15th, 1979, when CIA Officer George Cave, which is a little bit of a familiar name, he was deeply involved in Iran Contra and various other things. Uh, he had done a total of nine or ten years in Iran. He was the CIA operations side, you know, kind of foremost expert on Iran, fully fluent in Persian, very, very experienced. He was sent to Tehran uh, to give a briefing on October 15th. There were four people at this briefing, Cave himself, Foreign Minister Yazdi, uh, Ambassador Entizam, who flew back from Scandinavia for this, and the U.S. charge d'affaires, Bruce Langan. So four people were at this briefing. And I talked one way or another to all four of them and verified the following story. So the, the main purpose of the briefing was to give a warning to Iran that Iraq was making preparations to invade Iran. Uh, this was concrete concrete intelligence that the U.S. had gathered with satellite photographs and things of that sort um, about things like that. The U.S. that Iraq was practicing military exercises that could only be for an invasion of Iran. They were. Uh, pre-positioning military equipment in that area. They were carrying out military engineering projects like making uh, roads, uh, dirt roads. The tanks could go on through the marshes and things of that sort. And they were supporting the Iranian Arab rebels inside Iran just across the border from Iraq. So the US by October had been acquiring information about Iraqi invasion preparations. And this really worried the United States, because the U.S. wanted to preserve the territorial integrity of Iran. So uh, the U.S. gave this briefing to the Iranians. Uh, Foreign Minister Yazdi didn't believe it and thought that this was uh, sort of a CIA provocation operation or something like that. But Amir Antizam believed it and actually met again with Cave later on and got additional information. The other thing that Cave did in this briefing was to tell the Iranians uh, who were there about an electronic eavesdropping system called IBEX that CIA had partially set up by the time of the revolution. This was a series of listening posts and also intelligence collection airplanes that the US had been providing to Iran before the revolution to enable the Iranians to monitor what Iraq was doing across the border. Mm -hmm. And so it was really perfect for enabling the Iranians to monitor these invasion preparations that the, the Iraqis had begun to make. So the US not only warned the Iranians that the Iraqis were preparing for an invasion, but told them that they could use these electronic listening capabilities to monitor for themselves and gather intelligence for themselves about these Iraqi invasion preparations. Uh, unfortunately, five days later, uh, the US made the decision to admit the Shah into the United States, you know, the former king, uh, for medical treatment. Uh, This was then announced a few days later, and this began a period of about 10 days of growing tension inside Iran, which culminated on November 4th in the seizure of the U.S. Embassy by these radical Islamist students uh, and taking hostages, including these CIA guys. So there was no follow up to this CIA warning of the invasion preparations. Uh, The events, you know. Leading to the hostage crisis precluded it. After the embassy was taken, the Bazargan government resigned, uh, further you know making impossible any possibility of follow-up on this. Also, the Bazargan people did not tell their successors that the U.S. had delivered this warning. So, fast forward uh, ten months, uh, September 1980, Iraq indeed does invade Iran, right in the area where the CIA had been you know warning the Iranians about. The, uh, the Iranians, you know, the successor government had not gotten information about this. So Iran was entirely unprepared. They didn't even have troops within 50 miles of the border when the Iraqis invaded. So the Iraqi invasion initially was quite successful. If the U.S. warning had been passed on to Bazar Ghan's successors, the Iranians could have prepared extensively for it. And Iraq was actually not much strong, was not really any stronger militarily than Iran at this time. So probably if the Iranians had taken appropriate precautions as a result of the U.S. warning, the Iraqis wouldn't even have invaded. They would have probably been deterred from invading. Who knows, but, you know, it's hard to say. but this was you know, a, a major missed opportunity. Uh, the key interlocutor, Abbas Amir Entizam, uh, soon uh, the, the students found documents on this whole series of events. They saw that Amir Entizam had played the central role as go-between, so they recalled him from Sweden, and promptly arrested him. And he then served 25 years in prison. He has been Iran's foremost political prisoner since the revolution 40 years ago, 25 years in prison, in which basically he lost his mind. Um, so he paid a very high price. He was he was tried in 1981. And in fact, at the trial, Bazargan testified that the US had given a warning of this sort and you know, actually revealed some of the details of this. But of course, by this time, the Iraqis had already invaded. So that's the other really interesting CIA story in this period, although also with a very tragic uh, set of consequences to it. OK, let me just say a few quick words of conclusion because I've gone way over. Um, You know, what really should be clear from what I've been talking about is that the U.S. was actually acting with great restraint toward Iran in this time period. The CIA was not at all trying to destabilize Iran uh, or help opposition groups anything like that. What it was doing was gathering intelligence and providing some intelligence to the Iranians, including what could have been crucially important intelligence about the Iraqi invasion preparations if that had been passed on. So the CIA really was not at all uh, doing anything dangerous to Iran. And as I said before, the U.S. on at least 16 occasions had rejected Iranian requests for assistance to plot against the Islamic regime. Entirely the opposite of what most Iranians thought at this time. The U.S. was actually trying to be helpful and not trying to undermine the new Islamic regime. Um, What conclusions can we draw about after-empire situations? Well, unfortunately, this is a very idiosyncratic situation. I wouldn't really try to draw any conclusions from this. I mean, there are plenty of good grad students here. Maybe one of you wants to do like a PhD dissertation on after-empire, you know, sort of comparative after-empire studies Um, is a very interesting topic. Iran could be one of those cases. But just from the Iranian case itself, uh, I think you, you can't really say very much. You can quickly, or I can quickly compare uh, this situation with the British after 1953, the main thing is that the, you know, Iran's leaders in 1953, 54, when the British came back, were much more open and conducive. Whereas in 1979, the U.S. was dealing with intensely hostile uh, interlocutors on the Iran, well, not the interlocutors, but you know, uh, intensely hostile, radical Islamists who soon you know, overtook everything. Um, You know, there may have been opportunities during the revolution, or after this time period, particularly say during the Iran Contra era, or subsequently when the U.S. might have been able to make the after-empire experience in Iran work a little more effectively. For whatever set of reasons, we've missed those various opportunities. And here we are 40 years later with uh, very tense relations with Iran. So that's my story.